Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I am indeed Elaine Miller-Karis, and I am so excited to have my two guests today who will be talking about the international healing of both the community and the trauma resiliency models. Um, You all may know that the Trauma Resources Institute is a sponsor of this show, and I want to make sure that you all know that you can go to their website at traumaresourceinstitute.com, and if you would like to make a donation to a very worthy organization, I really would encourage you to do that. Um, But let's get started with a little background. The Trauma Resource Institute, first of all, is a nonprofit, and it has brought their ideas about healing in the wake of traumatic experiences to Asia, Europe, the Mideast, the Caribbean, Africa, Central America, North America, and the United States. They've created projects to help underserved individuals to learn what we would say are innovative, biologically-based interventions, the community and trauma resiliency models that can heal individuals and communities during and after human-made and natural disasters. So far, their work has been translated into, I think, close to 17 languages and has been been brought to more than 75 countries. Um, In February of 2022, TRI launched the Ukrainian Humanitarian Resiliency Project in collaboration with EdCamp Ukraine. And that offering, you know, I think after like two months of us doing the, the, the podcasts, they had over 80,000 views on Facebook. And by the way, this is also being live broadcasted on Resiliency Within Facebook page, if anybody wants to see this in person. So let's talk a little bit about what the Centers for Disease um, uh, Control say. They describe health, um, public health, as the science of protecting and improving the health of people and their communities. The field of public health fundamentally tries to prevent people from becoming ill by promoting wellness and healthy behaviors. Identifying mental health as a public health issue is imperative to building healthier and more productive communities um, internationally. So the Trauma Resource Institute's Dr. Michael Sapp, who's the chief executive officer, and Rena Patel, who's the Director of Education of the Trauma Resource Institute, are going to talk about the international work. Now, many of you know that I am the co-founder of the Trauma Resource Institute, and I, of course, will you know pepper some of the things they say with some of my, my own experiences. So welcome, Mike and Rena. Thank you, Elaine. Well, we have traveled to many far distant places um, together. And the international work that we have done has been some of the profound work of my life. And recently, the Ukrainian humanitarian project has also been extraordinary for us because it's the first time that we have given support during war. Um, And we have done it through the Zoom platform. And we have been, I think, quite amazed at how well it's worked. And we've also been so sacredly touched by our Ukrainian friends and colleagues that we have met since we started the training. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But before we do that, I know that you each have some meaningful memories of your international trips. 
And um, I'm going to start with Mike first. Uh, Mike, um, why don't you start and tell us about one of your meaningful memories? Well, I will, I will start out by saying I've had the opportunity with the Trauma Resource Institute, even before I came on as an employee, to travel to some really, really wonderful areas of the world, really wonderful communities, and met a lot of people that uh, oftentimes were in the wake of a disaster of some kind, whether man-made or natural. And uh, it has been, I, I will often say this in the trainings, I consider the sacred work that we get to do, that we're invited into these communities, especially uh, during a time that is so sensitive and to be able to provide the, the help we get to provide and teach the skills that we get to teach. I, it is, uh, like you said, it's been one of uh, the joys of my, my, my work, my life. And so, um, so that being said, uh, of course, a flood of memories, a flood of stories that I, I sift through one that I want to highlight just because it, I think it, it highlights for me the power of a simple skill and a simple uh, and how important a simple skill can be for just not only um, helping us re, uh, recover from and reset from the distress we may be feeling, but also it leads to a connection that can form in this international work with the people that we get to train. Um, and uh, we have a, a skill called resourcing where we, you know, it, a resource is anything that we bring to mind that can give us a sense of strength or peace, uh, or in some instances, joy or comfort. And, um, and one uh, activity that we do to help develop resources is to just draw a symbol of a resource, you know, and it could be as simple as drawing a symbol of something that helps you get through what helps you get through the challenges. And so when we were in Istanbul, I believe in 20, I want to say 2015, uh, Elaine and I were providing a follow-up from a previous training that we did there in the, uh, and we were working with groups of people that were working with the Syrian refugee crisis at the time, which was at its height. And, uh, we were on the floor, we had this big piece of butcher paper and we were invited and we invited everybody in the group to draw just a small symbol of their resource on the same piece of paper. We did that and we went around the circle and shared each, you know, what the symbol uh, was and what the resource was. And as we did that, of course, as we, we share some of the things that help us get through, we notice uh, kind of a return to what we call our resilient zone where we are at our best selves. And, um, and what was fascinating. So that alone was really touching because you get to hear uh, what helps people and what things they have in their own lives that are really profoundly useful to them um, and, and what they cherish. So that alone was really wonderful. And it really does um, evoke for me uh, just that sense of, oh, I love this work because we get to share in, their, uh, in, in what helps them as much as we share in their suffering. But what was so fascinating about this particular one is one of the participants just paused after everybody was done and says, you know what, is there a, if, we, if I take this pen and draw a line between each of our symbols, because I feel in doing this that we are so connected. Well, that just touched me because I thought, you know, here I am coming in being invited into their own community, 
uh, doing this work. And there was a very strong sense of connection. And she wanted to symbolize that through drawing as well. And so she took a pen, everybody gave permission, she took a pen and drew it. And what was really wonderful is uh, when we were done with the training, people wanted to cut out their symbol so they could take with them. Well, we cut, each of us cut it in such a way where we could see the pen mark that went and connected it to the other so that every, and I still have it, I carry it in my wallet. Every time I, I, I open my wallet, I see that symbol, which was from 2015. And I could still see those little pin marks that, that remind me of the connection that I have with those people and all these many years later. So it, to me, that was just a profound experience in the midst I, of all of the other things that we got to do. You know, I think that we all have, you know, many experiences like that. And you're reminding me, and so we were in South Africa and we were invited to come there. There had been so much unrest at the time in South Africa. We were in Johannesburg and one of the, um, the women who had just finished the training, she came up to me and she said, I think this is what Nelson Mandela meant by the rainbow nation learning about how to stabilize the nervous system is equality and is beyond nations, cultures, religion, and ethnicity. And I, you know, often quote her because I, I think that she encapsulated so beautifully what we have seen about how we come together with different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different cultures, and yet we have this common humanity and something that we all share in every part of the world, which is our the same nervous system that reacts in the same way, whether we live in California, South Africa, or in Istanbul. So um, that's a wonderful illustration, Mike. And I know that Rena's probably thinking right now, but I got to tell my story too, because I've got a good one that I want to share. And I know she does. So Rena, we had the joy of being in India together. And I think you had a story from India that you wanted to share. I did, Elaine, and maybe I'll get a chance to share it a little bit later, but actually the one I, I want to share just for at this moment is when you first invited me to come to a CRIM teacher training um, abroad, and that was in Nepal, that was in Kathmandu after the earthquakes in 2015, actually, and they, uh, they were still experiencing aftershocks at that point. Um, it was, you know, I remember you had said, you know, do you want to see what we do overseas and, and for, for your listeners? You know, part of this was I was trained as a social worker in Mumbai, India. Um, at the time, I was actually living in Italy, Naples, Italy. Um, I'd spent some time in Ecuador. I, you know, I, I so I've had a, a lens, an international lens, in terms of the work that I that I did and continue to do. And Elaine um, was so gracious in inviting me to to come be a part of this experience in Nepal and said, you know, I think it'd be really good for you just to see firsthand. Um, and so I came. And that for me um, was what really solidified how powerful this work is across geographic boundaries. I was skeptical and I will say that I was skeptical. I thought, well, this is, you know, I wonder how this is gonna look. You know, I wonder what this is gonna be like when I get there. And there were so many things that stuck out to me in that, in that particular training. Um, one was that Elaine had, you had uh, invited some of our crim teachers from the Philippines to come. And so when I got there, there was a whole team that was very diverse and it was so neat to see other people from, you know, from the Asian region, right? Being able to come to Nepal and to do this training and being given equal amount of respect and dignity on the training team and just being able to honor their lived experiences. So that was for me amazing to see um, how we worked with translators. Um, you know, I learned so much there. And then um, 
I just remember there was a lot of singing and dancing and connection, um, a lot of food, and it was just a beautiful experience. And the model translated so beautifully because we did similar exercises that we did in the United States. And then, you know, it just brought me back to that, the exercise that we do. Um, And I think this was when I really touched me similar to what you said, Mike, is like it really, really honed in when we did the experience around our common responses and reactions to stress, but also to wellness and to growth and to see that in Nepal and Kathmandu, people were coming up with the same responses, you know, that we do here in Los Angeles or in North Carolina, you know, people were coming up with the same responses without being prompted. Um, And I just thought, wow, this is so powerful um, to see this in action. Um, And it was just for me, a a really moving experience to see that work being um, really, it felt like we were, we were walking the walk in terms of how we were showing up in that space. And I also want to mention that, you know, the, the, the aftershocks were still happening in the training. And so we would be sitting down doing practices and practice skills groups and we would feel aftershocks. And so even being able to see us as a group really figure out, okay, what do we need to do to support the participants in this moment to really help settle their nervous systems as these things were actually happening in real time and being able to experience that as well um, was, again, was really profound to see and experience. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm, that um, you're touching, you know, the memories, of course, being in Nepal, which is a very beautiful country, um, but the translation piece, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that because, you know, people don't, when we say, oh, we're going to a different country, how do we do it? I mean, part, one of the things that we do is we look at, okay, what languages are there? Can we get our materials translated? Because, you know, it's been very important to us not to show up with just English materials. And so uh, someone had um, given me a contact here in the States who was from Nepal to translate our materials, but they really didn't have any concept of the, <laughs> of the model. And so I think it was the first day that one of the participants came up to me and said, do you realize that your pocket cards are small pieces of paper that you put in your pocket? There's another way of describing this. So the person had done literal translation. Now, I, you know, because I don't speak Nepali, I didn't know this, but we have had some challenges like that. And then we have had the challenges of um, us, like the person, we ask a question and it might be just a sentence and the person like responds back for 10 minutes and the person response, the translator says, no. And I'm going, well, what was in the no (laughs) or what was in the yes, right? So that's why we have to also, you know, we have to give our interpreters information about the model and about how they can, you know, respond and also what we need to be able to understand so that we can bring the model forward. But I think that the the Nepal translation was probably one of the more difficult ones we've had. So, and not to say- Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Oh, I was just going to say, and I think that what we have found in doing that work, right? So not only uh, a couple of things that makes me think about is we get feedback all the time from those communities at how appreciative they have been that we don't show up with everything in English, that we work really hard uh, ahead of time to get that uh, those translations, even if the translations are a little, you know, too Wonky. on the nose, right? Yes. Um, but or, or, or literal, but, but that piece has been really, we, that that's, we find that really important. That's an important value for us as an organization is to be able to, to walk in with materials that they can use. It's in their language, knowing that there's going to be some tweaking that needs to happen as we get there. But um, the other piece that I think about is 
uh, going back to similarly to the relationships that we form is what we have found is as we do work with the interpreters and these interpreters are hired to just uh, provide interpretation and translation services, but but lo and behold, as they're doing this, they start to become really well versed in the model because they're having to to say back and interpret what we're saying. And so by the end of the training, we find that even the people that didn't show up necessarily to participate in the training and learn these skills have learned the skills really well and are and are profoundly thankful as well to have learned the skills for their own self-care. And, um, and then the connection we form with them after that, because I know, for example, I know with the Nepal training, I was able to go back a year later as a follow-up and work with the same translators and to hear what they were then going out and doing and telling people uh, about the model just from their experience translating them and, and interpreting for us. So it, it, I love that piece as well, that these skills tra- uh, are, are not only for the people that were helping in that, that came to participate in the training, but also the people that are translating. Uh, they learn the skills as well. That's how applicable and, and I think easy to learn that they are. That's why this is part of why I love the model so much. Well, and I think that brings me to the, you know, one of the, the ways that we go into a country is we believe to train natural leaders of communities. And many countries that we go to may not have mental health practitioners, yet what we do are, uh, is share a set of wellness skills and the neuroscience behind it. Um, and the wellness sk- skills does lead to, to greater well-being connected to, you know, decreasing symptoms of depression and ang- anxiety and traumatic stress responses. But this brings me kind of a piggyback to what Rena was talking about, that when we go in, we do see suffering. And people have often asked me, how can you go into all these disasters and see all this pain and suffering? And you keep doing it. You keep going back. So I'm just wondering if either one of you want to talk about you know, what does propel you to keep going back? Um, we've touched some pretty great tragedies and sorrows in the world from hurricanes, fires, um, typhoons, um, war, and mass shootings. I mean, what, what do you have to say about that? How do, how do you do it? How do you keep your own well-being as you're helping others with such suffering? You want to go first, Rena? Yeah, I'll go ahead and um, get us started on this one. I, um, you know, if I think for me, um, having having something like these skills is something that uh, we can offer um, as a choice. You know, coming in the way that we do. Um, I think I I liken it to when there's a significant grief and loss. And before I learned this model, I didn't really, even as a trained therapist, it was hard for me to show up in those spaces and know exactly what to say. Um, and even now, you know, of course, we don't, we don't ever know what we exactly need to say or what would be the perfect thing. However, I, I feel like I can show up in a different way because I have this now, you know, I can show up and truly be present. Um, and that's because I can show up and use the skills for myself, if nothing else, and truly be present with people who are suffering. Um, and not try to do anything different or try to fix it, but to truly show up authentically and compa- in compassion, in my compassion, which is what we talk about when we talk about being in that resilient zone, uh, which is the heart of our model, right? Is that when we are in that zone, I can show up with greater compassion for myself and for others. I think that what that's really what propels me and, and helps me continue, um, no matter what the situation that we're, we're faced with, is that 
I know I have these pieces for myself to be able to show up in the most authentic way. And then I can offer these things to folks if they would like to try it or not, um, as I've seen it reduce my own suffering and communities I've worked with. Um, and so I just, I, I offer that as, you know, if there's nothing else I can control, I can control that, you know, how I show up in that space of suffering as well. Yeah. And Mike, do you have something to add to that? Yeah, I think the other piece I think about is, again, going back to me, going back to the sacredness of this work is that we are sharing in their suffering just by showing up. We're present and we're there. And that does weigh on our nervous system. That does weigh on us, right? It, there, there is a level of, um, of heaviness that, that that comes with. But again, being able to have the, the same skills that I'm sharing with someone or the skills that I'm using in those moments to help for self-care, but then also being able to recognize that we're also sharing in their strength. Because when we're invited in these communities, these community members have survived. And though they have incurred great loss, many of them, and we, we don't shy away from that. We don't pull away from that. We ask the questions about that great loss, but we're asking it from a perspective of strength as well. And we're utilizing and, and helping them tap into the strength that they have internally. And so in the same way, when we do that, uh, when I get to ask a question, when did you know you, you survived who, you know, when did you know help first arrived and see them start to tap into a part of the story that often doesn't get asked about, right? Oftentimes in the wake of disasters, we ask people about the tragedy, about the trauma, and we do address that, but we address it from a strength-based perspective. And I think when we do that, we get to borrow from their strength as well. So it does, for me, I have found it doesn't feel as heavy because I'm also being able to sit with them in their strength and tap into that. So that then when we do uh, work with the distress, we, we come at it from that perspective. We have, for me, I, I liken it to, we have an anchor point that allows us to, to work in that way uh, from a strength-based perspective. And I just think that that makes, to me, that makes a huge difference. And I think, I think that, you know, piggybacking on that is hope. I I think that's what I've often said. I said, well, yes, I see suffering, but when I see the hopefulness in that country and in the people, and these are not things that I'm saying, oh, you got to be hopeful. That would almost seem too trite. And I would never say anything like that. But when they say, oh, I can sense the hope inside of me. And I know that we can rebuild. We have great suffering. We have much to do, but we also have such strength as people that that is just wonderful to i think that to me is part of the sacredness of of being present with people when they when they touch into that hope um and that hope is such a propeller for rebuilding and also for touching into their grief regarding all that's been lost when there has been a huge disaster either human made or or natural disasters but i i also want to kind of uh, come back to because people may not know what the common reactions are and when you said that you saw in nepal that people responded in the exact same way as they responded in California or in other parts of the States. And we've certainly seen it in many parts of the world, but we asked six different questions um, in every country that we go to during our workshops. And could you, one of you elaborate on what those six questions are and, you know, what are the ingredients that people say the same things about? Yes. So we ask um, questions of what do you, you know, what do you experience um, during or after a traumatic or stressful event. And then we'll explore six different dimensions of being, right? So it'll look like thinking, spiritual, emotional, physical, um, 
and a missing relational. behaviors. Relational, yes. And behaviors. And behavioral. And so we look at all six of those dimensions and ask folks to either write down or get into small groups and come up with some responses around what, what does that look like? Um, again, with no prompting from us around, uh, you know, what should this look like or what can this look like? It's just you know, what does this look like in your experience? And so what we've found is that um, in every every space we've gone to, every country, every community, even across the United States, as diverse as the United States is, is that people come up with the same lists um, that we've documented over time as well and in our, um, in our materials. And it's, you know, really to illustrate this profound point that we do have um, one common reactions, right? To depathologize our reactions and responses to stress and trauma, but also that we do share a common humanity and, and nervous system, right? That we will respond similarly when faced with adversity. And just doing that simple exercise, you see people shift going, oh, I thought I was the only one. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess that doesn't mean that I'm weak. It just means that I'm human. And that is a very powerful, hopeful statement too, that we can do a paradigm shift when people are going through something as difficult as that. So, Mike, do you have anything you want to add to that experience? I just think it is so remarkable, just the reasons for the reasons you said it, that it illustrates, it's so remarkable to me it, how it illustrates the, how, how common uh, those reactions are and how much uh, it doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. These are reactions that we see. Um, that are that speak to the the role of the nervous system and how important it is uh, to to consider the biology and and see it as biological reactions that then have these outcomes and if we can reset the biology if we can help the nervous system come back into balance that some of these other outcomes uh the volume starts to turn down on some of those other outcomes that's what we have seen. That's what. And I've so, seen. can you say what what are those outcomes? What do you mean by outcomes? So, outcomes meaning you know some of the the things that people often list in there. What are some common uh, physical reactions to stress and trauma? Oh well, uh, you know, racing heart rate, uh, muscle tensions, GI, you know, stomach issues, you name it. And so, some of those or or relational, you know, what relational uh, outcomes do you see? Well, isolation or aggressiveness, you know, some of those outcomes that we see that are so common. Often what I, what we have noticed is as we work in this way and work with resetting and re-regulating the nervous system, and as they learn how to do that, those common reactions tend to turn down in volume. Mm -hmm. They become less aggressive, maybe. And we do a part two to this activity as well that I definitely yeah. want to mention because, you know, in the spirit of chasing the resiliency, um, we ask about uh, sensations or experiences connected to, you know, we used to call it post-traumatic growth, but we say wellness or growth responses or reactions um, after um, stress or trauma. And we've also seen uh, universal responses um, to those as well. Things about forgiveness and transformation and advocacy and greater compassion mm -hmm. that we've seen from folks all over the world as well. Very similar responses. You know, one of the things that some countries, people in some countries have said to me, um, oh, we're the happiest country in the world. <laughs> and I love that because almost every country can be the happiest country in the world, right? Because <laughs> of, of that, I think it's a human quality that not only can we, you know, lean into the suffering, but we can also lean into the incredible vast richness of the learning that happens from the suffering. And that doesn't 
diminish our grief when we've lost someone dear to us. But I think it is that indomitable spirit that we have as human beings is how are we going to keep going when great tragedies have befallen us? Well, I have to tell you, that was the fastest half hour that I've ever experienced because we are going to have to take a break right now. Um, and we uh, have to give some good lip service to the Trauma Resource Institute <laughs> at our break <laughs> and Voice America. So I just want to let our listeners know that we will be back in just a couple minutes and we will continue this really interesting conversation with Dr. Michael Sapp and Rena Patel about the international work of the Trauma Resource Institute. So be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. An inspirational speaker and an Amazon number one best-selling author, Carol Edmonston has shared her interactive workshops with both children and adults. 
Whether it's in a school, hospital, or a professional business organization, Carol is committed to impacting quality of life by weaving a connection between mind, body, and spirit through the creativity of doodling. Carol has been profiled in the New York Times and has appeared in Chicken Soup for the Breast Cancer Survivor's Soul, Forbes Health, and Women's World, among numerous other publications. Pick up Carol's award-winning book, The Healing Power of Doodling, Mindfulness Therapy to Deal with Stress, Fear, and Life Challenges Today. Doodling as a spiritual practice? This new form of mindfulness therapy allows your spirit to rest, relax, and regroup from the stresses of everyday life. The good news is you don't have to be a trained artist. The only qualification you need is feeling overwhelmed with life's challenges. Doodling is simple, inexpensive, and all you need is pen and paper. If you are ready to quiet your mind and acquire a new life management skill, then pick up Carol Edmonston's book, The Healing Power of Doodling, today. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I am with Dr. Michael Sapp and Rena Patel from the Trauma Resource Institute, and we have been talking about international trainings. And one of the things that sometimes happens with international trainings is that we sometimes lose power. And if we have internet connection, we sometimes lose our internet connection, which just happened to me in California. We, I think we have power surges going on because of the, the heat that we've been going through. So um, we're hoping that we're just going to be able to continue without a hitch. But if we do, you'll hear us go to commercial and we'll get back on as soon as possible. So uh, saying that, uh, Mike and Rena, um, I was hoping that we could segue and start talking about um, Ukraine and how Ukraine has bit, been a bit different from other international work that we've done. And uh, Mike, I'm going to ask you to go first. So why don't you give a little bit of a background about what we've been doing and how it's been different? Sure. So one of the, one of the major, major things, and Rena, you and I were talking about this a little bit at break, is because we uh, have access to Zoom, because we can utilize Zoom, <clears throat> that has enabled us to provide our trainings for people that wouldn't normally have access to it. And especially in this context with Ukraine, you know, we had already been talking with them prior to uh, the invasion uh, in February, we had already been talking with them about providing a teacher, a, what we call a CREM teacher training, where we, ta- we train people in the community, the natural leaders of communities, uh, how to provide either formal workshops or even just going around and teaching people in their community about the skills. We'd already been talking to them about doing that uh, prior to the invasion. But once it happened, we were able to pivot. And instead of doing a CRIM teacher training <clears throat> at the request of our colleagues there, we did four initial orientation, orienting, uh, webinars, sorry, orienting people to our model in general, and then subsequently offered daily uh, 
support meetings that then transitioned uh, to weekly. And now we are, are providing still one time a week, uh, these support meetings that people can drop in and learn more about the skills and ask questions. And just uh, we can offer support uh, in that way. And so it has been a, a really, uh, I don't know how else to say it, a really <clears throat> profound experience for us that we've been able to go into an area where there is active conflict and provide support in this way, in a way that we would never have been able to uh, otherwise. And so we talk about this being, a, a, for us, a, a big paradigm shift and what we can do and how fast we can get in there and help. I don't know, Elaine, if you had anything else. Well, I just think, I mean, literally the war started, this this latest version of the war, because, you know, the war has been going on since 2014, but on February 24th, and we were doing our first webinar on February 25th. So it, when we have been asked to go to other um, countries, oftentimes there is a stakeholder that contacts us and said, can you put together a project to go to Nepal, to go to the Philippines, Haiti, the different places where we've been? But we didn't have to have that wait time. We could respond immediately. And I think that's why we had so many people coming to the, the EdCamp Facebook Live page. People were coming in in droves. They wanted this information. And then it was clear that they had questions and they were living in war. So, I mean, the horrible questions that come up, you know, how do I explain to my child? My child's acting differently. How do I help my child? I'm so afraid of being raped or tortured. What do I do yeah. with my anxiety? I mean, these are questions that, we sometimes have dealt with after the fact, but not during, during the, 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 uh, the impact of war going on right, right then and there. And we have a belief because our model is biological that if we can help people with these wellness skills that help to stabilize the nervous system. So sort of speak is that there's something called toxic stress and that's kind of unrelentless um, flooding of our system with stress hormones when we are we have like the foot on the accelerator of our nervous system but many people don't know they even have a break and if they're in these kinds of situations they're just living in what we would call high zone or low zone states constantly never having a zone of well-being so now we can give them skills and they've reported back to us these skills really helped me when i was really worried about my parents that were left in kharkiv and i went to a safer part of Ukraine, when I heard you talk about things that I could do to stay in the present moment that helped me not only support them better, but help me support myself. It's like putting that oxygen mask on because and you, know, you can't change the fact that the, that the Russians are waging war on us, but I can impact my response to it. And I think that's been like, it's been, it's, it's been the most, um, meaningful work. I mean, I think we've done meaningful work, but the fact that we're doing it when it's happening, I think has made a big, huge impact on all of us who've been the volunteers and the staff of TRI. So I know, Rena, you have been coming on board too. Do you want to mention some of your your um, reflections on this? Yeah, I just, um, you know, want to emphasize that you know, when EdCamp um, Ukraine, when we had been talking to, with them about doing the CRIM teacher training before the invasion happened in February, um, that, you know, we we did have a set plan, but then to be able to pivot, you know, as an organization and really honor and respect what they were asking us to do, you know, or what they, what kind of, help, what help looked like in that moment, 
because of, of course we were ready and willing to help in whatever way that looked like, but really to take the leadership from, from those folks in the community there in Ukraine and say, this is really what we need. Um, and as Elaine, as you just mentioned, a day later, we produced something that hopefully met those needs and then continued to do that and continued to have that conversation. It wasn't, there was never an assumption made on our part as an organization that this is this would be the best thing to do, or this is what you need. It was very much a half step behind whatever the ask was, you know, and then of course providing some of that, the guidance um, and support, but then always being respectful of what does this look like? What does help look like in this moment for your community? Um, and then we were there to hopefully provide the best we could. And so I think that was another piece for me as I was watching us as an organization respond to that. It was a dance, really. It was this art that was involved in it even the structure of our training. You know, we had a combination of video materials and we, you know, had shorter chunks of our, our training. There were four hours versus days long. And so, you know, being able to even to, to, to match our structure to what was needed to address the situation like this, having contingency plans in case something did happen, you know, while we were live in a training, right? What did that look like for us to make sure we were still taking care of participants? Um, and so those were all for me, just learnings that came out um, of this, of this piece. And so, and so Mike, you, would you like to add something to what Rena's saying? Yes. I'd like to add a couple things. Number one, uh, there's a story as you were talking, Elaine, that came to mind uh, that I want to share because I think this to me typifies what uh, the, the the beauty and the the power the power of of just learning simple skills can be um, or can do. And this was I, I believe within that first week. Uh, we had already done the four webinars and uh, we had opened it up to people to come in and, and just ask questions or, or make comments. And so uh, this woman had come on, I believe, uh, Elaine, you were talking with her and and she said, essentially, and this is what we, you know, I, I, I wrote down is my house is destroyed. My office is being shelled. I barely escaped with my life. I will never be the same. I will never experience happiness or laughter again. I'm alive now, but tomorrow they could kill me. And, and, you know, we don't say, oh yeah, but let's think of something joyful. No, no. Let's think about being hopeful. No, no. It's, it's, we meet them where they're at. We affirm those feelings. We, we, we use the skills in a very conversational way. And Elaine, I think in those moments you were, you were using the skills in a very conversational way, but you allowed uh, the, the skills were being used. Right. Um, and so as you did that, we noticed that the, that, that kind of numb despair that she was reporting started to lift a bit. So that was one time. Fast forward two days later, and this same woman came on the call two days later and um, happened to be there when we were just doing a kind of a group activity. And, and one thing we have found in doing international work is being able to find a song, you know, is there a song that people sing in this culture that is uh, something that we could sing uh, that is uplifting in some way? And she, this one person, I mean, it was kind of silent as people were thinking about it, but then she unmuted and uh, very sweetly in an acapella um, way saying, uh, or saying, sorry, uh, a, a Ukrainian hymn, acapella, no instruments, no other, but I mean, it was just the, there was such a beauty to this moment. And once she got done singing, she said, 
I was able to sleep and eat for the first time since the war started after coming to that support meeting. And this is what she said. It is like a miracle to find this hope inside during the war. Well, that it still gives me goosebumps because that's why we do what we do. You asked earlier, why do we do what we do? That's why we do what we do. At least for me, I can answer for me. That's why I do what we we do because the the power of learning these simple skills that we can find that kind of hope even in the middle of such darkness. That's profound to me. Um, well, and, and I have to say, being the person who heard the first part of her story and talking with her um, after that call, I remember being very moved. Actually, I called you, Mike, and I said, yeah. "Oh," and I cried. I said. Yeah. I don't, I feel like we're doing so little for people that need so much. And I didn't know that she was going to call two days later and say what she said. So I think that also attests to what we do when we go into a disaster. We invite people to learn what it is that we know have helped many people, but we do not say, oh, you must do this. We say, this is something that may help you or not. And when we do that, I think we come in with such respect and humility of leaving it up to them, what they may or may not need from us. Because, you know, many people have come in from the West to different parts of the world and sometimes have come in sadly as ugly Americans. And so sometimes we're, you know, there's a suspiciousness about us. Are we going to be there to help to um, acknowledge their culture, their beliefs, or are we going to try to do something to them that is not in accordance to how they live their lives? So I think that in try and I've certainly worked very hard to do this, and I know the two of you have as well, we really too try to come in with um, with such deference and respect and wanting to learn about the culture. And so that brings me to another part of what we do that people may not know. If we're going to go to a country, whether it's going to Ukraine or going to Nepal or Istanbul, what? how does our team prepare to go into a different country? Um, maybe I can have Rena respond to, I know that... Um, you're also getting people ready to go to Angola (laughs) on Zoom. (laughs) On Zoom, going to Angola on Zoom. Um, So one thing that we do is um, really, you know, we often have a point of contact in the respective country that we're working with, uh, a coordinator on there and a community um, and asking them for what are the best resources for our team to familiarize themselves with. You know, what are the sources that you're looking at? What does that look like to really understand more of the the local culture and community and climate of what's happening? Um, It's not enough for us just to rely on our American version of those resources. We're very well aware of that because we know the media can be very biased and have a lens. So we're very um, particular in making sure we're also getting uh, local input from wherever we're going in terms of what are the things that you know, our team can be reading, watching, looking at, understanding more of um, as a start for us to really have that conversation with our training teams to prepare ourselves going in. Um, I kind of, I kind of remembering a funny story. <clears throat> Rena, you came to one of your first trainings when you were living in Italy and you came mm-hmm. to London where Mike and I were doing our very, very first training in London. And I erroneously thought, well, oh, the Brits are going to be like us. Right? <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> I was very wrong. And so we have a a skill that's called gestures and there's self-soothing gestures. There's joyful gestures. And we have this exercise where we invite people to express themselves joyfully. And when I invited the, um, the individuals who lived in London uh, to do that. They looked at me like I was saying, uh, take all off your clothes and run naked through the streets. (laughs) They said, Oh, we don't do that. (laughs) 
That's such an American thing to express joy, right? We, and then we, Mike, we don't have any gestures of joy. We, is what they said. We, right? we don't have any gestures of joy. And then Mike happens to be a big fan of is it Liverpool, Liverpool? Liverpool Football Club, English Premier League football, soccer. Yes, for those yes, of us in the states. Yes. And so when you finally said that, they uh, they go, oh, oh, we could relate to the joy of winning a a, a football match. Yeah. So we yeah. did, they did express themselves joyfully with thinking about that. But I mean, I use that as an example because we've also learned not to make assumptions about yeah. somebody may be a certain way, even if though it may proliferate our press mm -hmm. that everybody who lives in this country does this. Well, just not so true. Yeah. Um, so we've learned to just be embracing of what we need to know from them. And that's often the question as we come in, what is it that we, you would like to share with us so that we come in with the utmost of respect? Uh, and that includes, you know, our Northern Ireland um, folks that we learned from them that for some people, resiliency was a dirty word. And that happened the day before our training. And here we have a model that has resiliency embedded in every possible way, but we learned it was about the definition and the definition that they had that was part of the oppression of the government, not about the empowerment and healing and compassion that we see in our definition. And I guess that's what else we've learned by going around the world is not to assume that everybody has the same definition of even a, a word like resiliency that means something differently to maybe me than it may mean to others. Well, and I think to that point, we one of our big values is adaptability, right? Mm -hmm. And and so when we go in, I love, uh, and I think you say this, you said this, Elaine, with your experience in Nepal, which I wasn't on that one, but I've noticed this with Philippines. I've noticed this in Istanbul. When people sit down that speak the language and look at the translation and they say, wait a minute, maybe this term would be better than this. How can we say, you know, a resilient zone in uh, Nepali? How do we say, you know, high zone or resourcing in uh, Tagalog, you know, that those types of conversations that we often hear, I, we love, we cherish, we welcome. And so I think that also speaks to our, our value system of make it your own. You know, the concepts now, this is what the concept of this skill is, what word best represents it in your community, that's adaptability. It's not, nope, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. It has to be this way. No, it's how do we bring this model in with respect to their community, to their lives and their lived experiences? And I think that we've been also doing that with Ukraine as well because of yeah. the materials getting translated by, um, uh, her name is Natalia, and Natalia is an amazing translator and interpreter. We love I Natalia. We love her. And I want to say something about her because this relates back to the how the interpreters learn how to be teachers. So today she actually did a student teaching with me because she's becoming a teacher. And one of her colleagues who observed her teaching, he said, oh, Natalia, I've seen you interpret for so many people over the years, but you were interpreting their voice, not your own. He said, today I heard you with your voice and it's beautiful. Mm. And it needs to be heard more. Oh my gosh, it makes me cry when I think oh. about it. And you can imagine what that meant for Natalia to have someone yeah. like Alexander say that to her. So I think that's the other thing. People who come to our trainings um, when we go to disasters are often so surprised that they have attributes and skills 
and that you don't necessarily need to have, you know, all these different advanced degrees to help your neighbor when they're in need. And I think that's what we do on international trips. We equip people with very adaptable, tangible, easy to use skills that they can use with their own language to help not only change themselves, but others. And it always reminds me of that little lady who said in the Philippines, uh, thank you for reminding me what I already knew, but had forgotten. And that's about touching that humanity, those resources, those strengths that live within us, but sometimes get shrouded. Well, my goodness, we just have a couple minutes left. So I'm going to, any parting words from either one of you before we, we say goodbye today? You know, I just have to say, um, you know, this is not something I typically do, but I'm trying to get better at, but I would just ask viewers and listeners if, you know, to support our international work and not just the work that we do with um, assembling trainings for respective countries, but we have a lot of international participants coming to our public trainings, um, which is could be the spark, right, in, in, a, in a particular country. A lot of those are um, are based on scholarships, actually majority of those. And so I encourage folks to donate um, and come to the Trauma Resource Institute website and, love, and look um, and learn more about the work we're doing because um, really, we really uh, have a very strong value of making sure this is accessible across the world, including for folks coming to our public trainings as well. And Mike, can you please give us the name of the website, how people would find the website in order to give the donation? Traumaresourceinstitute.com. And I just have to say in my parting words with you too, I appreciate you two so much. You do so so much amazing work. But I also want to say something about the Ukraine project. We had a relationship with Ukrainians before the war started, and it's about relationship, relationship, relationship. And if we hadn't had that relationship, we wouldn't have been able to respond. But we also responded because our organization is really mission-driven. And because we're mission-driven, that means we we pivoted many staff members and got many volunteers to do something that didn't have any funding associated with it. And in order for us to keep going as an organization, we need those donations. So I'm just going to ask you again, think about going to that www dot trauma resource institute.com and supporting our our international work because it does make a difference in people's lives so i hope that everyone as they're listening can hear what else is true that the trauma resource institute really does try to spark that when people have been have suffered the greatest losses of their lives and they are dedicated to that and i'm so happy to be a part of it still And again, I'm so grateful to Mike Sapp and Rena Patel for coming and sharing their wisdom. And absolutely, we probably could spend another two hours to get even more of your wisdom about international work, but that will have to be what we have today. So until we meet again, this is Elaine Miller-Karras signing off for Resiliency Within. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller-Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated.
Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.